Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome or welcome back to Season 3 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. The Logical Christian Podcast is not here to tell you what to think. It's an exercise in how to think. Rather than just accept what we're being told with regard to current events, politics, science, religion, and everything else, we're going to stop the spin, ask questions, dive deep, and look at the world logically. And since logic is a gift from God, most importantly, we're going to look at it all as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. I'm sure that's just a suggestion, though. And didn't Joey on the TV sitcom Blossom always say, Woe? And he got the laugh track like every single time. So how bad can woe be, right? Right? My friends, I believe that we may be living in a mirrored existence. It sure seems to me that we're substituting darkness for light and light for darkness. And frankly, I'm against it. After careful consideration, I just don't approve. On today's episode, first we're going to learn the value of a human life. Spoiler alert, not as much as you might expect. And then we're going to eat until we puke, which may be faster than you think. And finally, I readed books good. Me want to tell about it to you. So rip that whole first chapter or two out of the Bible. You won't be needing that error-riddled part anymore. Then pause before you just dump that dustpan into the garbage. There might be some good eating in there. And finally, fire up Amazon and get ready to just buy, 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 buy. Now, hold a mirror up to your podcast player. Go we here because. Found on Fox News via MSN.com, headline, Canada halts assisted suicide program for mentally ill due to lack of doctors. Now, normally I have some lead up and some background, something before just throwing out the headline like that. But I'll be honest, I have no idea how to lead into this one. This isn't the original headline I saw, actually don't even remember which one was the first one I saw, but it was more like on The Messenger, with Canada pushes back controversial plan to let mentally ill die by assisted suicide, or found on Reuters, where they said Canada to further delay assisted death based solely on mental illness. And I thought, well, okay, at least that's good, right? They're pushing it back. They're delaying this horrible plan. But then when I looked it up later, I started seeing the headlines like on CatholicNewsAgency.com, Canada postpones assisted suicide for mentally ill. Country not ready for it. Okay, I mean, well, that's it's not as good. And, and Globalnews.ca, medically assisted death for mental illness delayed until 2027, colon, minister. Which... That isn't as good. I mean, 2027 will be here before we know it. And then and then the Fox News article, the program to kill those with mental illness has been halted because they don't have the doctors to do it. And I think we need to talk about this. I've had this on my long list for quite some time and haven't really wanted to tackle it. But, uh, well, Canada has lost its flipping mind. Let's just be honest here. So I found a paper on pubmed.ncbi.nlm.nih.gov or as we call it in the biz, PubMed, because I'm, I'm going to have to pause this recording here and take a nap after that address. Wow. Headline, The Psychological Slippery Slope from Physician-Assisted Death to Active Euthanasia, colon, A Paragon of Fallacious Reasoning. The premise of 
this research paper, if we want to call it that, is that an argument has been made that if we allow physician-assisted death, eventually it will lead to euthanasia, including involuntary euthanasia, or we could just call that what it is, murder. Now, this paper argues that that's simply just bunk. And why? Well, because it's using the old, overused trope of the slippery slope argument. As we know, the slippery slope argument is just silly, especially if it's a conservative argument or a faith-based argument. Because those of us that are conservative or religious, especially of the Judeo-Christian persuasion, well, we're just backwards, thinking, sky-god-worshipping, silly-headed worrywarts. This is as opposed to those on the left that absolutely know that if, for example, abortion is left to the states to decide, well, women will be ripping their innards out with rusty coat hangers within weeks. Or if we don't allow men into the girls' bathrooms, well, there will be stacks of murdered tranny bodies all over the place. Or, or if we don't allow sexually explicit books in elementary school libraries, before we know it, kids will only be allowed to be educated via the old, dusty, outdated, mythological Bible. You don't need that. All of those slippery slope arguments are valid, but not the idea that if we allow people to request help in, you know, committing suicide, eventually people will be assisted, regardless of if they want that assistance or not. So where do we begin with this? Well, if I cover what really needs to be covered, we'll be here all day, so let's not do that. If we look at the modern era, and I'm using that term a little loosely here, at the end of the 1800s, the United States started to dabble in something termed eugenics, which very basically translates from the Greek as good birth or well-born. The basic idea is that humans are nothing but cattle. We selectively breed cattle in order to get the best animal we can. Why not do that in order to breed out the undesirable people? Well, this was a way that those who were pushing the idea thought that they could, you know, and they just kind of help evolution along by doing that. So boiling down the history to its most basic level, this started with the idea of sterilizing certain types of people. By removing the undesirable genes from the breeding pool, it would elevate the good genes, and soon enough we'd have bred superhumans. <laughs> Ubermensch, you might say. Now to that end, the early American eugenicists felt that the Nordic, Germanic, and Anglo-Saxon people groups were far superior to the other options out there, so they wanted to promote those for, for absolutely sure, and to clean up the gene pool they wanted to start by, you know, forcibly sterilizing well, the poor and the disabled and, and those classed as immoral. Well, this movement became quite popular. The Carnegie Institution, Rockefeller Foundation, J.H. Kellogg, and many others put in extensive funds to promote eugenics. Through the 19-teens and the 1920s, field workers were sent into mental hospitals and orphanages to evaluate people, to determine who should be allowed to breed, and more importantly, who shouldn't. This is where Margaret Sanger and her new foundation, Planned Parenthood, started. That was a way to help eliminate undesirable births when the unfit already committed unauthorized breeding. Uh, this was also the best way to get rid of those of the darker-skinned persuasion, as they were considered to be, you know, less than. A number of states worked to create eugenics offices, and in the early 1900s, some states were able to do that. Some criteria for those who shouldn't be allowed to breed were the epileptic, the imbecile, the feeble-minded, the mentally retarded, 
1927, the Supreme Court upheld, citing the Constitution somehow, the forced sterilization of patients in Virginia that were fitting just such criteria. By 1911, there was a fear that too many of the wrong kind of people were breeding their genetics into the Nordic and Anglo-Saxon population of the United States, and a fear that genes that were weak with regard to disease resistance were, you know, getting in the mix. So the Carnegie Institute put out a report that explored 18 methods of removing those genes. One of those methods was, you know, drumroll here, <laughs> euthanasia, you know, murder. The best way they had to do this was... Oh, wait for it again. Gas chambers. But those in the eugenics movement felt that the citizens of the United States, well, they weren't quite ready for the gas chambers yet. No, that didn't stop doctors who subscribed to the idea of eugenics, though. A mental institution in Lincoln, Illinois, gave their residents milk, infected with tuberculosis, with the thought that the genetically strong would survive. The other doctors just simply didn't provide adequate care or provided incorrect care in order to thin the herd, as it were. By the 1930s, a media blitz via film, newspapers, and magazines promoted mercy killings of the undesirables and defectives. This idea didn't really catch on in the United States, with most feeling forced sterilization and segregation was probably the better option. That said, with all the legwork done, with some results and the promise of what could be, another group took notice and decided to do this also. That group? Why, the Nazi Party, under Adolf Hitler, of course. In Germany, the sterilization law was passed in 1933, but what Hitler really wanted was the right to kill those who were incurably ill. The population wasn't on board with that at that time, but in 1938, Hitler instructed Karl Brandt, Hitler's doctor, to evaluate the petition of the parents to a son who was blind with physical and mental disabilities to perform a mercy killing on the boy. Well, he was killed in July of 1939. Less than a month later, the Reich Committee for the Scientific Registering of Hereditary and Congenital Illnesses was established with the purpose of registering sick children or defective newborns. The killings of those children started later that year. It's secret, of course. In a little over a year, 5,000 children had been murdered. Hitler wanted to further this practice by killing those that he deemed as not worthy of life, such as the mentally ill. After the invasion of Poland, the idea was pushed that it was unacceptable to ask men to fight a war to protect the lives of these feeble-minded. The head of the state hospital near Munich advocated for killing them by just a gradual decrease in food, thinking that gradual starvation would be more merciful than, you know, injections of poison. So to wrap this part up, German eugenicists around since the 1920s, learning from the United States teamed up with the Nazi party, and sterilization moved to mercy killings, moved to euthanasia of anybody the Nazi party deemed was unworthy of life, somewhere in the neighborhood of 400,000 mentally ill, thousands of children, 6 million Jews, millions of gypsies and homosexuals, etc., etc., etc. Please don't tell me there isn't a slippery slope. I mean, we see this with abortion today, right? When Roe was passed, abortion was safe, legal, and rare. That was the mantra. The idea being the first trimester was the safest to abort a child. In fact, it was safer to abort a child in the first trimester than for a woman to give birth. Well, that was the thought and the, and the lie and the, the cobbled together and, and faulty science. Which, did you know that the term trimester was created by the courts at the time of Roe in order to determine when abortion should be done? Yeah, I mean, trimesters aren't actually a thing. 
The terminology was only created so they could kill unborn babies. Anyway, abortion, safe, legal, and rare, mostly first trimester, well, that's turned into anywhere, anytime before birth, anytime partial birth, well, in some cases immediately after birth. Again, don't tell me there isn't a slippery slope. We live in a sin-cursed world full of sin-filled people, and the slope is indeed quite slippery. So the slippery slope argument was deployed with the legalization of abortion. If we start to trivialize life, how long before we start working other angles? Rather than the unborn, what about the disabled? Again, what about the elderly? Who are the undesirables now? And who will they be in the future? Zeke Emanuel, one of Obama's authors of <clears throat> Obamacare, you know, the system that definitely doesn't have or promote the idea of death panels, believes in something called the complete lives system. This is a very simple graph that shows you your chance of receiving medical intervention based on your age. When you're newly born, you have a very low probability of receiving any medical intervention, any extra medical intervention other than the standard, less than a 10% chance of getting any of that extra. And then it's a very fast ramp up, peaking at very close to 100% from the ages of about 18 to about 30 or so. Then there's a slow decline to the age of 57 or 58, where you land at about a 60% chance. Then a step change over the next few years to the age of 60, where now you've got about a 25% chance of receiving any sort of extra medical intervention to help keep you alive. Then it drops to about the age of 75, just a slow, gradual drop. And, and that's where the graph stops. And why does it stop at 75? Because that's when you have no more use. See, Zeke, who is now 66, a number of years ago, said that 75 years old is as old as people should be. After that, if you're going to die, well, that's just nature. He stated that he hopes to die by 75 and that he'll refuse medical intervention at that point. And I wonder if that'll hold true as he gasps for air while he's lying flat on his back. Now, did you know that just recently the National Institute of Health, part of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the self-described medical research agency making our lives better, well, they proposed changing their mission statement. Did you know that? The current mission, as found on their website, reads, quote, NIH's mission is to seek fundamental knowledge about the nature and behavior of living systems and the application of that knowledge to enhance health, lengthen life, and reduce illness and disability. So if you were a betting man or a betting woman or, I guess, a betting other, what do you think they wanted to change in there? Well, not a whole lot. They just changed this part. See, they said, quote, to seek fundamental knowledge about the nature and behavior of living systems and the application of that knowledge to enhance health, lengthen life, and reduce illness and disability. They'd like it to say, quote, to seek fundamental knowledge about the nature and behavior of living systems and to apply that knowledge to optimize health and prevent or reduce illness for all people. See, they want to optimize health, not enhance it. And what exactly happened to the little phrase in there to lengthen life? That's gone now. Now, both of those are potentially terrifying. Removing length and life is obvious, right? But when you optimize something, you're, you're making it as good as possible within agreed upon compromises and determined boundaries. It doesn't necessarily mean making it as good as it can be. So the question is, are they admitting that they don't have a clue what they're doing? So they're just kind of backing their mission down to something they think they can accomplish, you know, setting the bar lower? 
or are they intentionally changing their mission? I guess we'll learn soon enough. <laughs> I know I have my guess. Okay, that was probably the biggest digression of the year thus far. Let's head back north to America's hat and see what Canada's doing, eh? In the summer of 2016, the excitement was growing, the law against assisted suicide was about to expire, and the Medical Assistance in Dying, or MAID, bill was working its way through Parliament. This bill was being hailed as a sea change in, um, in medicine. <laughs> At that time, there were still a number of questions that needed to be answered. Did you have to be terminal to qualify? What about those with mental illness? Is it only adults or can kids be eligible as well? What would the cost be and who would be doing this assisting? Most importantly, how would it be done? Kind of seems cold when you're talking about, you know, the murder of people. But, you know, here we are. Canada wasn't the first country to do this. The Netherlands, for example, have been doing this since 2001. In fact, in 2020, their parliament was proposing allowing children between 1 and 12 years old to be considered for their assisted suicide program. Now, before you get concerned and think, what about those children under a year old? Do they not have rights? Oh, they, they do. Yes, they sure do. They had that right before. In fact, yeah, that's right. Under their existing law, you could murder, you could assist your child up to one year old with, with their dying, as well as everyone 12 years old or older. Yeah, see, the government bureaucrats, you know, working for you, well, they just wanted to fill the gap now. Now, look, they're not just animals here. The current policy is only for terminally ill infants with no hope that are in pain. It's just, it's just better to do them in. And the new policy would have the same kind of restrictions on the kitties. Yeah, we're, we're not talking some heartless method like, like gassing them or something. No, this new policy clearly restricts that. Quote, for the children referenced in the new policy, doctors are only allowed to give palliative care like sedation or withhold nutrition over an extended period of time until the, until the patient dies. Withhold nutrition. Didn't we just talk about someone who thought that was the, I don't remember. Can someone help me understand where exactly we are here? I mean, I seem to remember a, a long past era where Pudgy Sally Struthers openly wept about starving children, almost implying that that was a bad thing. Where now I'm learning that's the humane thing to do. You know, just starve kids to death. <laughs> I'm confused. We should probably just ignore all that and just head on back to Canada, eh? Right, Jehoser? So previously in Canada, helping someone die was illegal. They called it culpable homicide. You know, like being an accessory to murder. But no, that was overturned in early 2015 by the Supreme Court of Canada. Yeah, we're apparently not the only country that has a Supreme Court that sucks. By June of 2016, Bill C-14 passed in Parliament, which amended the criminal code to legalize physician-administered euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide. Well, they did have caveats, though. I mean, we are a civilized people. Mental illness, long-term disability, and curable conditions were not considered to be allowable. And, and as for kids, I mean, hands off. You leave the suicide to adults. I believe in 2020, the program was further amended. The British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, <clears throat> and we're not the only country with a civil liberties organization that sucks, the BCCLA argued that it just wasn't fair that those with long-term disabilities or 
My favorite thus far, quote, those with curable medical conditions whose only treatment options people may find unacceptable weren't able to kill themselves like those terminal guys over there. The Quebec ugh, Supreme Court ugh, agreed with the BCCLA. Ugh. So the law was subsequently amended to include those whose death wasn't reasonably foreseeable. They also made it so that if you were pre-approved, and if you became incapacitated at a point at or before your chosen date, well, someone else can just give the okay. You don't have to give the final say in your death. And they made it easier to fill out the form. Only one witness needed. Now, not a, not a pesky two people have to agree that you probably need to die. <clears throat> but they absolutely positively would not include those who were mentally ill. No way. No. Well, I mean, until March of 2024, when apparently that prohibition expires, now, I'm still trying to wrap my head around a law saying you can't help someone kill themselves or a law saying you can't help mentally ill people kill themselves, a law that expires. How do those laws expire? You think that laws about not murdering would just kind of be set in stone, wouldn't you? I mean, surely it can't just be me, right? It's not just you, Dan, and don't call me Shirley. So that brings us to today, where Canada is postponing this expiration date another three years until 2027, not because they want to be sure about this, not because they want to respect and value even the most compromised and helpless among us. <laughs> no, no, no. Simply because Parliament is being told that Canada's super-duper socialized health system just couldn't handle the added load. One of their concerns, and this is just silly, is that they weren't sure that the health system could reliably distinguish requests for assisted suicide due to mental illness as opposed to mere suicidality due to mental illness. I'll just say this here. If these bureaucrats can see a difference in those two, well, I think we've found the truly mentally ill in Canada. According to the latest report, which covers 2022, 13,000 Canadians killed themselves through the program that year. That's only a mere 30% higher than it was in 2021. So um, congratulations, I guess. Canada has the or nearly the most liberal suicide program in the world. In February 2023, they pushed for the ability of those under 18 who were considered mature and terminally ill to have the right to participate in the program and also to have the final say if they wanted to go through with it or not. Not, not the parents. In 2022, two women, two different cases, were approved for the assisted suicide program because they lived in poverty and they weren't getting the help from the government that they thought they should get. In one case, the woman wanted to be approved for subsidized housing. She was dealing with a chronic condition, was living at the poverty level, and the government wasn't getting anywhere. <laughs> Shocker, being a socialist government. So when she complained, well, they just suggested that well, then maybe she should avail herself of the MAID program since her life really wasn't worth living anyway. Now, they didn't say it quite like that, but that's what they said. In fact, doctors and hospitals are mandated to present assisted suicide material and explain the option to patients or they could get in legal trouble. Now, I can hear some of you say, but Dan, how much would something like this cost? Oh, and I hear you. I mean, at the very least, we don't want to lose money killing people. And if at all possible, if, if we could profit through a little bit of legalized murder, even better. 
<clears throat> well, a study that was undertaken in uh, early 2017 by the Canadian Medical Association Journal, and uh, we got some good news from them. They did some statistical studies based off of the murders being done legally in Belgium and the Netherlands, and they came up with a direct cost to implement the program of somewhere between one and a half and $14.8 million Canadian, but a reduction in health care costs, remember, they're government-funded socialized health care of between 34.7 and 138.8 million Canadian. That's a pretty good profit. And then they gave the standard caveat. Well, if the costs are higher than the high estimate and the savings are lower than the low estimate, at the very worst, they could kill people and break even on costs. So, you know, win-win. So why did and is Canada going down this path? Well, it's because they're a socialist increasingly godless society. They're driven by a sinful, twisted set of emotions, a distorted sense of liberty, and the, the love of money. The complete live system, the basic framework underlying Obamacare is built on exactly what we're seeing in Canada. The, the government can't afford everything for everyone, regardless of what they tell you. I know that this year they set an all-time record for signups for Obamacare, and every mainstream news source was praising this accomplishment. That's not a good thing. Actually, that that's one more step towards socialized government run health care and nowhere in all of history has socialized health care worked for any longer than just a very short period of time. Eventually, the government runs out of your money, even at a massive tax rate. At some point, they need to start to ration care. One of the best ways to figure out who to give your dwindling medical resources to well, it's to kill off the people that are considered heavy users. You know, the chronically ill, the terminal, the old, the depressed, the poor. Reducing the medical roles reduces the cost in itself. But when your system is paid by the confiscation of taxes and you have people, young or old, who simply can't contribute while using a lot of the resources, well, the best thing for the system is just to eliminate the drag on the financials. Now, look, all seriousness. I can sympathize with those in chronic pain, those with terminal illness, even those with severe debilitating depression. I don't agree with suicide, assisted or otherwise, but I can sympathize with them. Look, I know how I feel when I'm going through a period of depression, for lack of a better term, or when I've injured something again, or I've got some illness, like whatever's going on with my throat that just lingers on and on and on. I have no idea, and I pray I never do have an idea of what people go through with the issues they're going through. I can fully understand a man ate up with cancer, in pain every day, just waiting for the end, taking his life. And I'll be honest, there is at least a little struggle at my core with the humanity of dying, dying with dignity, choosing to die rather than live out the last painful chapter. I'd say that if we're all being honest with ourselves, we probably all kind of feel that slight tug on the emotions Unfortunately, whereas it used to be that suicide was discouraged and the sanctity of life was promoted, even in dying, today we've made it easy to kill yourself, legally or illegally, in a bunch of different ways, ways that don't involve the traditional few ways. We can just take a handful of these or drink some of that, and now we can just simply fill out an application. Now, sure, it's not widespread in the United States yet, but we're getting there. The U.S. currently has nine states where assisted suicide is legal. Washington State, Oregon, California, New Mexico, Colorado, Maine, Vermont, New Jersey, and Hawaii. And additionally, Washington, D.C. Interestingly, all solid blue leftist states. <laughs> I know, I'm shocked too. 
Add to that, because of a court ruling, despite it being illegal in the state, well, it's been made de facto legal in Montana. More activist judges that need to be fired and allowed to seek honest employment or just be thrown in prison in many cases. Twelve more states were considering it in the 2023-24 legislative session, and it appears that seven of those bills have already been killed, no pun intended, with one state taking no action yet, the others appear to be stuck in committee. The reality is, though, and, and you and I both know it, the slippery slope will slide more and more states into the pits of assisted murder. It's just a matter of time. So what exactly is going on here? Well, it's quite simple. Man is no longer regarded as the image bearer of God. We are now just a walking meat sack that happened to hit the genetic lottery, climb out of the slime, and evolve to what you see today. There's no soul, there's no purpose, there's no meaning to life. We're just here, and then we die. Back in 2016, Bill Nye, you know, the science guy, <clears throat> at the invitation of Ken Ham, toured the Ark Encounter exhibit in Williamstown, Kentucky. This was a walking debate between the two. About 30 minutes in, Ham gets Nye to shut up long enough to consider a question, and Ham asks him, quote, In your worldview, when you die, what happens to you? To which Bill Nye answered, quote, You're done. Now, after some back and forth, Ham asks him a series of questions, rapid fire, things like, you know, why do you care about this or about that? And then he boils it down to, if when everyone dies, they're done, why does anything matter, ultimately? Well, Nye then goes into a monologue about how what we do is make more people and how evolution is blah, 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 something, until Ham refocuses him again. But why does it matter? If when you die, you're done, who cares? And Nye's answer is that our job is to pass our genes to the future. And maybe they'll achieve something great and inspire people and discover things. And Ham rightly keeps asking, but why does that matter? To which Nye stumbles a bit and says the meaning of life is to live to pass your genes on. See, the answer that Bill Nye couldn't find was that there is literally no purpose at all if this is all there is. Now, Nye finds it an amazing thing to live in this time, in this part of the world, in this scientific system. And although it wasn't asked, what if he was born with a severe handicap? What if he was born in another era? What if he was poor and unknown? See, his joy in life is predicated on his wealth and perceived position of prominence. Bill Nye is 68 years old. He has many, many fewer years left on this earth than he's already used. His time is fading. He's past his peak. In fact, I haven't heard anything of him in years, to be honest. I mean, he's still around, still claiming to be a science guy, which he absolutely is not. I always like to mention that he and I have the exact same degree, and I've done way more engineering design work than he's ever dreamt of doing. Now, he's got me in the net worth category, though. I'll give him that. When he dies, he won't be done, but it'll be all over. He'll know the truth, and unfortunately, the truth will now imprison him in eternal torment. But Ham knows there is value in life. He knows that we're here because God put us here. We all have a part to play in God's ultimate plan. Unfortunately, some are vessels that have been made for dishonorable use, as Paul says in Romans 9. And that, as of now, appears to be Bill Nye. But that's not certain, though, until he draws his last breath. So, man was created in the image of God. God leaned down and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And because of this, we learn early in Genesis, after the flood, as God is blessing Noah and his sons, he cautions them, quote, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. There is one group of people who should be assisted in dying, and those are the criminals who have forfeited their right to life by their actions 
against the lives of others. Now, we could debate where that line is. I know who would I would put into the category of those who need to pay with their lives. But what's clear is that we no longer believe that as a society. We've become a people who value the criminal and devalue the hurting, the desperate, the vulnerable, and the weakest among us. We will spend time, money, manpower, legislative sessions ensuring the murderer or the child molester is comfortable and well taken care of for decades while simply throwing an application at someone with depression saying we can make those feelings stop permanently, you know, if you'd like. Per the words of God, those who have been involved with enabling an individual to commit legalized suicide, well, well, their lives are forfeit. They've shed the blood of many, directly or indirectly, by their very actions. Innocent blood with regard to the human realm, so their blood is required by God. Now, that may not manifest in this life, but unless they repent and turn to Christ and live, they will eternally pay the penalty for what they've done. Now, lastly, I just want to say that although I can empathize with those struggling with pain, with depression, just as we don't have the right to shed the blood of someone else, we don't have the right to shed our own blood either. There are no caveats to this. And being a Christian doesn't exempt us from pain, terminal illness, or depression. Some of the theological giants in Christianity have battled depression, men like Charles Spurgeon and Martin Luther. Why? I don't know. But it's well documented. Yet they trusted God implicitly. Paul prayed three times for God to remove the thorn in his flesh, whatever that was. The standard thought is that it was eyesight, but we don't know. It could have been chronic pain. It could have been a sin he battled. We don't know. But we know it was something he considered to be big. And we know that he suffered beatings, shipwrecks, stonings. There's no way he couldn't have had chronic pain in the cold and in the hot, waking up every morning, just trying to loosen up, aching, beaten, arthritic joints. Just pick an apostle or, or any of the martyrs that were tortured for who knows how long before they were finally killed. Or those today who are persecuted, beaten, imprisoned for their faith. Now, God did not promise that he wouldn't give us more than we could handle. That's one of those biblical misquotes. But we've been promised over and over again in the Bible that God will be with us. We know that he will never leave us nor forsake us. We know that although we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we need not fear for God is with us. We know that all through the Psalms, God is with us, fighting for us, protecting us. And as Paul told us in Romans 8, quote, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the message that should be sent to those considering suicide, to the parents who see their child in constant pain, to the child or adult dealing with severe depression. The man with cancer, the woman with MS, those dealing with poverty, the hopeless, the unloved. These people don't need to be put to sleep like an animal being put out of its misery. They need to know in whose image they've been created. They need to understand their value because of that. They need to hear about the love of God, the, the pure, unconditional, perfect love of God, and the sacrifice made by Jesus, his son, and the promise of a perfect, glorified body in eternity with their creator and savior. Pain in every form has existed since nearly the beginning of time, and will plague this existence until time ends. The answer is not for humanity offering humanity an application to die, but to start offering them the truth that brings hope, the truth that brings life. For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God 
not from ourselves, in every way afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is working out for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. One thing I know is that those of us, such as I, in just such a position of trust as I find myself in, in this position of information reliance or relayification, is that I should heretofore and thusly lead with my mistakes. Here's a problem. I don't make mistakes. I remember one time, that many, many moons ago, when I thought I had made a mistake, I figured out I was wrong. So as I said, I don't make mistakes. So why then would I even bother starting out the segment this way? Well, I mean, how do I say this? I, I'm in a very awkward position right here. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I, I think I found, well, just a really glaring error in the Bible. Just a, a huge error just staring at us in our fat, dumb faces. How nobody has caught this before, I, I just, I don't, I don't get it. I just don't get it. See, in Genesis 9, Noah and the fam, fresh off the boat, God hooksing up them with the deets. Should I stop now? I think I heard my child's very being snap in half right there, and she's not even here right now. So, God blesses them and reveals something that we've clearly got wrong. Verse 3, quote, Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you, as with the green plant I give all to you. And this is where the trouble began. In the LSB, which is what I just read you from, the Hebrew word that's translated as food is Strong's word H402 Ochla, which was mistranslated in the KJV as meat. In fact, the KJV primarily translates this word as meat, but it's also translated as food or fuel, as well as eat or consume or devour. In nearly every other translation, in Genesis 9-3, it's translated as food. So why do we care? Well, verse 4 tells us, quote, However flesh with its life, that is its blood, you shall not eat. In fact, if you go back to what God told our federal head, Adam, the first man, the big cheese, the original, he said, quote, Behold, I have given to you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has the fruit of the tree yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And again, that's the LSB, but the KJV, well, translates it again as meat. People, we were never meant to eat the flesh of our fellow brother animals. PETA, in fact, does not stand for people eating tasty animals. Oh, no, no, no. 
It stands for something else. I'm not sure what. Something about being nude and gluing yourself to stuff, presumably. It's probably Latin. That's not the point. The point is that we've been consuming animal flesh that had contained, or in some cases for you sickos, still contains blood. And that was never meant to be. Now, I know. Why did it say every moving thing that's alive? Well, have you ever seen the beauty of a breeze through amber waves of grain? Or a gentle tropical storm whispering through the willow trees? So graceful, so awe-inspiring. Just think about it. Look at what's happened in this world since the time of Noah, who clearly got this wrong. Since they first sank their bloodthirsty teeth into rump roast and bone-in ribeyes and bacon and Kentucky Fried Chicken, this world has just spiraled out of control. Murder, Sodom and Gomorrah, and you and I both know what they did there. (laughs) That's right ate meat probably, the enslavement of God's chosen people, wars, rumors of wars, pain and childbirth, horsemen, hangnails that peel all the way to the back of your neck, obesity, Taylor Swift, Jar Jar Binks, and Joe Biden. And have you ever seen all three of them in the same room at the same time? Yeah, me neither. Odd, don't you think? Tell me that this isn't God's judgment on the world for eating meat. Well, don't worry. Science, food science, food and fuel science, true okra, science is slowly but surely setting things back into the created order. Maybe now the world can start to heal. Found on Euronews.com, headline, sawdust for starters, colon, could turning industrial waste into meat alternatives solve food scarcity? Well, Joshua Askew, author of this article, you bet your sweet bippy it could. So look, I've eaten a lot of sawdust in my day. In fact, I've probably got at least a small percentage of my lungs full of sawdust. According to menshealth.com, headline, quote, 31 foods you eat regularly that contain sawdust. Yeah, I bet you didn't know that. You're eating sawdust just, just like all the time. You want the list? <laughs> yeah, you do. Tomato sauce, salad dressing, ice cream bars, whole wheat bread, granola bars, packaged cookies, bagels, frozen breakfast sandwiches, frozen diet entrees, breakfast cereal, veggie burgers, salad dressings, boxed cake mix, Worcestershire sauce, hot sauce, frozen filled pasta, like ravioli, packaged fruit cups, corn tortillas, flour tortillas, vegetarian soy-based, <clears throat> quote, meats, frozen pizza, sour cream, flavored coffee syrups, Cheese spreads and dips, dried soup mixes, packaged cupcakes, frozen breaded fish, frozen pie crust and pot pies, sorbet, coffee creamer. Yes, I know it's pronounced sorbet. And actually, there are literally thousands of foods that contain, well, okay, not exactly sawdust. In fact, it's it's actually cellulose. So cellulose has been an approved food additive since 1973. It's a tasteless plant fiber found in bark, leaves, plants in general. It's part of the plant cell wall. You can get it from various fruits and vegetables directly, or it can be processed and added to foods. It's It can be a filler, a thickener, a low or no calorie additive to reduce calories in foods to make them more diet friendly. Grated Parmesan cheese contains about 10% cellulose, in fact. It's a dietary fiber, so it helps you to stay feeling fuller longer, and it has some health benefits. That's a good thing. Unfortunately, that's not what Euronews is talking about. So there's an Estonian startup company, yes, Estonia, you know, the, the relatively small country on the western border of Russia, just south of Finland, across a small gulf off the Baltic Sea, the country that's known for, um, and, and also for, uh, 
And of course, wood food. Anyway, some Estonian got a bright idea and thought, hey, let's make food out of industrial waste. So in 2022, they figured out some totally scientific way to produce fats and oils from industrial waste. Now, lest you think he's crazy, the co-founder, Petri Jean Latvi, said, what we have developed, I don't actually know what an Estonian accent sounds like, quote, what we have developed is very similar to brewing beer, where yeast is used to convert sugars from barley into alcohol, and hops are added for taste. We're using a different type of yeast that converts sugars from industrial side streams, but not into ethanol, into fats and oils instead. He added that it's a very natural process, like child, no, like fermentation. The beauty is that this yeast, along with a little nitrogen, can take things like straw or food waste and turn it into ingredients for food or cosmetics. Now, they have a picture in the article. You know how when you buy a diamond from a jewelry store or that shady pawn shop, they put that alleged definitely not fake diamond on a black velvet background and blast it with light? which somehow hypnotizes you into spending way more than you probably should. Yeah, that's kind of what this picture is. It's a black background, not a diamond. It's a, it's a red lump of something on a mirrored surface with the light shining on it. It's the color of raw beef, which is great because, quote, the rosy red oil produced by AO's innovative process is ideal for making alternatives to meat, which often need a splash of color to attract consumers away from their animal-based rivals. Which, look, I do not want plant-based or wood-based meats. But that was before. Nobody ever said anything about color. <laughs> Sign me up, you crazy Estonianites. Apparently, producing palm oil, which is used, I mean, just everywhere, quote, has caused devastating deforestation across Asia, Africa, and Latin America, according to the World Wildlife Fund, who would never lie about something like that. Did you ever think about that? The palm oil deforestation? No, you didn't. You only think about yourself. But this company said that the rosy red oil they're making from waste is the perfect plant-based substitute oil for food. This yeasty goo is apparently tastier and healthier, and it mitigates the, quote, huge environmental impact of animal fats and plant-based oils. But Mr. Latvi admits there might be some hurdles to get over. He needs to be able to mass produce this rosy red yeast goo oil cheaper than companies can produce palm oil, just mowing down forests the world over, apparently. He also needs to overcome the little, uh, you know, the stigma of people eating fake meat made with industrial waste yeast oil. But he makes a point that you're not going to be able to argue with. It's the same thing, basically, as other fermented food, you know, you know how you eat just all that kimchi just all the time? Or yogurt. Yeah, it's basically the same as either one of those. Now, he makes the super valid point that his product would be more economically competitive if all those government subsidies were removed and if producers only factored into their prices the environmental cost of animal and plant-based products. So to break that down just a bit more clearly, if the cost of our foods was to be raised artificially by tacking on some sort of arbitrary environmental tax, I guess, on palm oil, why, then his rosy red yeast slime would be more competitive. Now, just to give you an idea of how old I am, I can remember when companies used to strive to be cost competitive in order to undercut the other guy so they could sell their product cheaper and gain more market share. 
I guess what we do now is whine about how everything and everyone else should raise their prices so we can all just play fair. You and I as the consumer, you think would have a little say about this, but but no, 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 you'd be wrong. So I looked at palm oil because, well, I mean, you know how much I love rabbit trails. Apparently, Indonesia is the largest palm oil producer, and there are subsidies of some sort, but I couldn't figure out how much. In my search, however, I did find something on OurWorldInData.org regarding oils, palm oil to be specific. They have a nifty little bar graph. The graph has nine different oil types and how much land would be needed to grow enough crops of each one of them if they were to have supplied all the oil needs in 2020. So for reference, one hectare is 10,000 square meters. Basically, think of a football field long by a football field wide, right? That's close. Or if you're more of a land guy than I am, one hectare is about 2.5 acres. Now, per the graph, sesame oil is the most land heavy. It would have needed 3.08 billion hectares in order to have produced enough crops to make all the oil that was needed for 2020. Cottonseed is next at 1.71 billion hectares. Ground nut would need 1.49 billion. Coconut would take 977.8 million. Olive oil would take 854.8 million. Still haven't reached palm oil. You noticing a pattern here? Soybeans would take 490.2 million hectares, the most uncomfortable crop of them all. Rape seed, who exactly named that one? That would take 312.5 million. Sunflower, 304.3 million. And finally, the last one on the graph, palm oil. Palm oil would have taken a mere 77 million hectares in order to have made all the oil the globe would have needed in 2020. So our Estonian friend is annoyed about palm oil, what appears to be the most efficient oil-producing crop out there. Okay, but that doesn't matter. Let's jack up the cost of palm oil so he can get his rosy red yeast fluid into the competition. Makes sense to me. Now, Mr. Latvi said that even with all that, the biggest problem is, quote, legal barriers are probably the trickiest to overcome, or let's say they contain the most uncertainty. The biggest unknown for us today is the regulations. We all know and understand that the food has to be safe, but the processes to apply for a normal food permit today are, how to say, not very understandable or predictable. The article is correct in saying that the EU has some of the strictest food production rules in the world. I mean, they are in just a constant process of banning foods and food ingredients and chemicals and processes and about anything and everything you could think of because being a nanny state or a nanny conglomeration of countries, they're just trying to save us from ourselves, like like in every area. Of course, at the same time, they really kind of want us to you know, just basically not exist as a human race because we're destroying the planet or something. All right, so maybe rosy red moist paste via yeast isn't your bag. Maybe you're more into something found on LiveScience.com. Headline, scientists convert plastic waste into vanilla flavoring. Now, this article is actually from mid-2021, so hopefully you've been buying your plastic waste vanilla for your Christmas, sorry, for your winter celebration solstice festival of lights cookies. The byline of this next travesty states, quote, in the future, your vanilla ice cream may be made from plastic bottles. (laughs) Mm. So science has come to our rescue once again. Don't worry about, you know, things like microplastics being just 
all in every organ and in your blood and in your brain and in your reproductive naughty bits, like they keep telling us to be worried about. What we know now is that plastic vanilla is the way of the future. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Dan, can this get any better? And for the second time this segment, your sweet bippy can be bet and bet it again. How are they converting plastic into food flavoring? Why, through genetically engineered bacteria. <laughs> oh, boy. Sciences. I mean, it is something. <clears throat> so they say that vanillin, the taste and smell of vanilla, can be made naturally from vanilla beans or synthetically. But now they're wanting to make vanillin using mutant bacteria and plastic waste. So a couple of researchers at the University of Edinburgh knew that plastic bottles made of polyethylene tetraphthalate could be broken down into basic subunits called terephthalic acid. Did your tummy just rumble too? <laughs> so did mine. Jinx. Well, these researchers genetically engineered some good old E. coli bacteria in order to convert the acid into vanillin. In other words, they made E. coli eat broken down plastic and poop out vanillin for us to enjoy. Uh, this is pretty simply done by making just a few minor changes to the number of hydrogens and oxygens that are bonded to the same carbon backbone. But I know that's what you were already thinking. As we all know, global plastic is one of the biggest environmental crises out there, along with all the other environmental crises that are also the biggest too, as well. And right now, all those plastic bottles and whatnots can only be turned into fibers for clothing or carpets. But now, with science and mutated deadly bacteria, we can turn plastic into food additives. Now, I told you all that because now your mouth is watering, or, or maybe you're not so enticed by the thought of waste food, and you just like food, like like real food, or, or something that at least resembles real food, not sawdust or plastic bottles. Well, found on CNN.com, headline, Tyson Foods, one of the biggest meat producers, is investing in insect protein. <laughs> oh, yeah. Tyson Foods, you know, the red bags of frozen foods, chicken mostly, but also a major producer of beef and pork. Well, they're setting their sights on insects. And why? Well, because that's what all the environmentalist wackos are saying we're going to have to do. Eat bugs. Bugs are super nutritious and healthy and yummy and plentiful. And if we eat bugs, we don't eat pigs or cows. And those are just killing the planet. So, I mean, just wins all over the place. Well, Tyson, well, they're out getting ahead of the profit. I ahead of the game, they just recently invested in a Netherlands-based insect ingredient maker named Protix. They bought a minority stake and are working to help them build a factory in the U.S. <laughs> but Dan, you ask yet again, can it possibly get any better than this? Well, you know what sweet thing that you have that you can bet. We've covered your bippy a few times now. The U.S. factory will use animal waste, you know, poo, to feed black soldier flies. Those black soldier flies will be summarily murdered and turned into food for pets and poultry and fish. For now, the article says, quote, those flies are not going into human food at this point. The CFO of Tyson said, quote, today we're focused on more of an ingredient application with insect protein than we are a consumer application. <laughs> uh-huh. CNN calls insect protein a long-hailed, sustainable food source, linking to another article on CNN entitled, The Food That Can Feed and Maybe Save the Planet, colon, Bugs. <laughs> mm -hmm. <sighs> but they admit that it just hasn't caught on mainstream, and I, I for one have no idea why not. 
The good thing is that in recent years, the idea has caught on for animal food for now. Rabobank, which is apparently a food and agribusiness bank, predicts that animal feed insect protein demand will increase from 10,000 metric tons per year today to about 500,000 metric tons per year by 2030. Now, Tyson doesn't make pet food, but they sell animal byproducts to those who do. And hopefully they'll be selling insect poop fly protein to them as well soon in the future. Christine Johanna Picard, a professor of biology at Purdue University, who helped to create the Center for Environmental Sustainability through insect farming. And I got to ask, how damaged do you have to be to create, you know, that? Well, she said that she sees the market for insect ingredients growing at an exponential rate. And that's simply because there's so much demand for insect protein. And then this article goes into how animals are killing the planet because they take a lot of water and energy and they make gas and whatever. But bugs, bugs are way better. The black fly can eat about any waste you throw at it. And then we can eat them and make waste again, I guess. I don't know. It's the circle of life. And all this is happening at the same time that the World Economic Forum and the environmentalists are telling us that literally the production of the single most important food source, rice, needs to be reduced or eliminated because according to the WEF site, quote, global rice production is releasing damaging greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, doing as much harm as 1,200 average-sized coal power stations, according to the Environmental Defense Fund. See, the best way to grow rice, and the only way it's really grown, is to flood rice paddies in order to keep invasive bugs away. But that also leads to a bunch of decaying plant matter in the long run, which microbes then feed on and produce methane, which is destroying the climate and the planet by burning us to a crisp. Now, they cite a different way to make it by alternating water levels, low to high to low, but that could actually increase oxygen levels in the soil, which could react with nitrogen and create nitrous oxide, which is another greenhouse gas. So basically, we're all going to die, and it's because of rice. Now, at the same time, in April 2023, news came out that rice was going to see its biggest shortfall in 20 years due to weather. No, not not climate change weather and due to the Russian-Ukrainian war. This drives up prices and it forces countries to dig into their stockpiles. Now, if this were to continue, which it wasn't predicted to, it would, in short order, start resulting in, you know, things like starvation in countries around the world. But that's okay, right? I mean, to paraphrase Ebenezer Scrooge, if they're going to die, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. As all the environmentalists will gladly tell you, the lower the number of humans on the planet, the better. That's less CO2, less energy used, less food needed and consumed, and the planet can finally live in peace with itself, and evolution can continue on and hopefully not make a grand mistake like it did with humans. So bottom line, your view of God directly affects your view of food, animals, insect protein, turning plastic into wine or whatever, and eating rosy red sawdust oil. If you don't believe in a god, then you believe that we're just a lucky accident, that the planet is barely holding together, that man is the highest being there is due to evolution, but evolution took us too far, and now we're destroying the very system that created and supports our life, and by doing so, we're destroying the lives of all the other creatures and plants that have evolved on the planet. And really, the only answer is to do whatever we can, including committing a form of racial suicide, racial meaning the human race, the the only race of humans there is, in order to save the planet. 
I mean, if that means that half of all the land on the earth needs to be kept all natural, left alone by man, like National Geographic told us in April 2019, well, okay. If it means that we need to plant one trillion trees, which is about a third of all the trees we currently have on the planet today, in order to save the planet, as time told us in August 2020, we'll get planting. If it means we need to invest globally $8.1 trillion by 2050, that's about a third of the U.S. GDP in a single year, in order to tackle the, quote, triple planetary crisis, like the U.N. told us in May of 2021, well, send in your contribution. And that comes out to about $590 billion per year, or at least it did at the time. But if it means that globally we need to not contribute $500 billion, but actually $5 trillion per year, and not by 2050, by 2030, like was stated on Reuters in October 2021, well, send in more contributions. I mean, you don't mind paying a bit more in taxes to, to save the planet, right? Or if it means $3 trillion a year, as the WEF said in January of 2023, starting now in order to save the planet by 2050, or $2.7 trillion, and I'm not sure why it's going down. Do we not care about the planet anymore? Per year, like Reuters said in September 2023. Or if we need to eliminate that $7 trillion every year that's going into investments that are making things worse per the UN from December of 2023, well, let's chop those out and shut those climate change industries down for good, shall we? And if it means that people, you know, freeze or, or boil or starve or whatever, you know, die from disease, live in the literal stone age, stagnate industrial and scientific progress, trap emerging nations and third world countries in their current primitive existence, removing sustainable sources of meat and grain because of greenhouse gas emissions. Well, I mean, what can you do? We're talking about the planet. Now, don't worry, Zuck is raising his delicious cattle on macadamia nuts, not for you and me, for the elite, so they can have delicious beef whenever they want it. Now, you and I will eat the sawdust and plastic vanilla and infused poo fly protein, and we'll love it. Now, in contrast, if you believe in a god, a god who created everything, a god who's not only in control, but also omniscient and sovereign since before time, you know, the god of the Bible, then you must believe in a god that at the very least foreknew, if not foreordained, as I'd maintain, all of this. Side note, if you claim to believe in God, but you claim to believe in evolution, or catastrophic man-caused climate change that will kill the planet, I'd challenge your assumption that you can hold both beliefs as true. You better be very sure of which God you're actually claiming to believe in. Is it the one in the Bible, or is it one of your own imagination and construction? Now, as I've said before, God was not surprised by the discovery of oil. He didn't bury it real deep and hope we'd never find it. He wasn't shocked by natural gas or the refining of oil into diesel or gasoline. He wasn't sucking his beard as the Industrial Revolution got into full swing. He didn't panic when emissions were being pumped into the air or when the Cuyahoga River caught on fire in 1969 due to pollution. He didn't rouse Jesus from his slumber, stating in abject incredulity, Just look at that! Now what are we going to do? as internal combustion vehicles rolled off the assembly lines, and he's not the least bit concerned that we're going to destroy the planet before his time. The planet will burn up at some point in the future and then be remade perfectly, as defined by God, for his children. We, humans, can do a lot of things. We can screw up a lot of things. Trust me, <laughs> I know. But God, being omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and completely sovereign, at the very least created the planet to deal with everything humanity will do in however many years this current existence is allowed to run. Now, I'd personally argue that God not only created the planet to handle human progression, 
but that he, per the Westminster Confession, quote, from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own free will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. As part of that, God created vegetation, self-sustaining vegetation, with seeds, seeds that incidentally have to die and be buried in the ground before they can spring to life infinitely more glorious than the seed they came from. Just saying. He created all that on day three, before he created animals, birds, fish, or man, before he ever created the sun, moon, or stars. The sun that's a crucial part of vegetation growing. Then after animals, birds, fish, and man were created, we were given, quote, every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has the fruit of the tree yielding seed. It shall be food for you. After sin, we still weren't allowed to eat the flesh of animals, but I guarantee it was being done. Maybe not by Noah and his family, but it absolutely would have been done by millions of other people on the planet. But after Noah got off the ark, God changed that, quote, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. As with the green plant, I give it all to you. All of it. All of it. If you can eat it, you can eat it. It's one prohibition. Don't eat blood. Then you get into the very specific dietary laws of the Israelites, all dealing with scales and no scales and fins and no fins and cud and cloven hooves and jointed insect legs and the list goes on. But that was only for the Israelites. That didn't affect us carnivorous Gentiles. If you wanted to get real technical at that point, our only restriction would have been the no blood thing. In fact, it could potentially be argued that we are still under that command, as it was repeated in Acts 15.29 when the Jerusalem Council looked at the various laws and decided that the Gentiles that were becoming Christ followers should abstain from blood. However, Paul stated in Romans 14 that we shouldn't judge people by what they eat. So can you eat blood? Can you have that rare steak? I think it's gross, to be honest, but really, it kind of sounds like it falls into the gray region of Adiaphra, or areas where the Bible doesn't give us a clear direction. So it's between you and the Holy Spirit, you and your conscience. If you feel no conviction over that dripping piece of meat, hey, you go for it. If you like your steaks, medium to midwell like I do, that's fine too. Get off my back, you bloodthirsty vampire. If you want to live a vegetarian or vegan lifestyle, please stop telling us about it. Nobody cares. But look, you do you. It's all good. And if you want to eat your authentic Ezekiel bread made from <clears throat> wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and spelt, you do it. But make sure it's authentic, please, so that you get all of the health benefits from it. And to be authentic, it must be cooked over human poo. Okay, fine. Fine, that's gross. I get it. Yahweh gets it too. You can use cow poo. Just please make sure there aren't any black soldier flies being farmed on that poo before you light it up. Back to the biblical diet. And Peter in Acts 10 was told that we, Jews and Gentiles, could eat whatever we wanted. The old dietary laws restricting delicious bacon and bacon cheeseburgers, if you get real technical, yummy camel, probably. Those are gone, right? You can eat anything. Now, we know this because in Peter's vision, when he saw this large sheet coming out of heaven with birds, animals, and crawling creatures, ugh, and was told to slaughter and eat, his response was that he couldn't. He had never eaten anything defiled and unclean. God told him that he was not to call anything he called clean defiled. This had larger implications, right? I mean, the Gentiles were now being grafted in, but this did directly apply to the dietary laws. The unclean creatures were now apparently clean, and that's where we stand today. We have no other dietary guidance that supersedes that. Now, there are some that believe that at the end of time, when all things are remade, we will no longer eat. 
I don't personally believe that. I believe that we may not be required to eat or that it won't be as necessary to eat. I also believe that the original nutritional values of foods will be restored so that they will fuel us more perfectly. There are some who believe the old dietary laws from Leviticus will be reinstated. Eh, I don't know, maybe. There are some who believe we'll all be vegetarians, like Adam and Eve were originally, and that includes animals. Well, as someone who isn't big on fruits and or vegetables, that sounds like a horrible, horrible existence. But if that's the case, I kind of think I'll be okay with it when the time comes. So what does that all mean for today? Look, if you want to eat sawdust slime, if you can eat it, go for it. If you want to eat insect protein, there's nothing prohibiting you from doing it. Just make sure you don't have a leg or an antenna, you know, stuck in your teeth when you talk to me. I might actually spew. If you want to eat pig and cow every day of your life, you're not going to kill the planet by doing so. You may possibly kill yourself quicker than other people, but not the planet. They were made for us to eat. Eat and enjoy. And if you want to eat nothing but veggies and fruits, you're nuts. No, I'm sorry. I meant and nuts. Well, that's your prerogative. Here, <laughs> you can have mine. We've got to get back to a point of understanding that God is God and we aren't. We need to understand that God is sovereign. We aren't. We need to understand as rightly as possible what God's word says. Even if we don't always like what we're reading, if it's in the Bible, it's the word of God. It's there for a reason. So it's our job to understand as best we can and figure out what to do with it. So for as long as we're able on this planet, and I have no doubt that in our current trajectory, it's going to get more and more difficult to do so. But for as long as we're able, do not call something unclean that God has called clean. So rise up, insert your name here, slaughter and eat. So some would say that this update should be entitled something like Book Review Chapter 1. Because, you know, books, chapters. But I used chapter in my naming of the Let's Be Bereans segments regarding my observations in my Bible study with absolutely no forethought whatsoever. I could have used book with that, you know, Let's Be Bereans, you know, book one, right? Because, you know, Bible, books, but I already used chapter. And since I used chapter already there, but not book, I could call this book review, book one, but sometimes the book review will have one book and, and sometimes more than one book. So numbers could get confusing here. And I mean, come on, really book and book. I mean, it seems a little tacky. So going to the World Wide Web to use the magical internet, I looked up some cinnamons and I've decided on installment. And with absolutely no forward thinking about how that might screw up something else in the future, welcome to Danny's Book Review Installment 1. The premise of this segment will be just a little complex and convoluted. Let's see if I can explain this here. Over the course of days and or weeks, I'll read books. About once a month, I'll give a review of the aforementioned book or books. And I guess that's really about it. Uh, look, I'm not going to come up with any sort of a rating system. I mean, some I'll give more info on than others. I'll try to at least let you know if I recommend or don't recommend the book or books. Although, I'll be honest, I rarely don't recommend a book. I mean, last year, out of the 24 books, I think I only had one that I, I really didn't recommend because it was, it was just kind of a tough read. It was academic. It was not overly compelling or exciting. I don't know. Now, there were a few that I liked less than the others, but that was probably more personal preference than anything. Generally, if I've purchased a book or if I've asked for one as a gift... It's going to be one that I'm fairly confident I'll recommend to others. 
As for logistics, this will go along with the goal update and the Let's Be Berean segments. I'll probably put those out about once a month or so. Same with this. So hopefully I'll have at least two books per review. Um, we'll just kind of have to see how that goes. So with that, let's turn to the first cha- <clears throat> Let's turn to the first installment. Boy, I really need to think things through smarter in the future. Okay. So the first book I finished this year wasn't really actually a book. It was more of a booklet entitled The Art of Self-Discipline, written by John MacArthur. Full disclosure, I support Grace to You, which is, I guess, the media arm of Grace Community Church, of which John MacArthur is the pastor. So from time to time, I get sent some free swag, these small booklets being one such piece of swag. So as it was the start of a new year, it was new year, new goals, but the same old me that struggles with self-control in a few different areas of life, I thought I'd take a look. Now, he starts with the practical application kind of side of things, right? It's, it's a list of 10 steps to live a disciplined life. And these are nothing overly groundbreaking. It's start with the small things, organize, schedule, be on time, keep your word, do the hard thing first, finish what you start, practice self-denial, and take on responsibility. And that's a great list of how, but as one might surmise, MacArthur is less interested in the how than he is the why. And this is where he focuses nearly the entirety of the booklet. This is where he takes a quick but relatively deep dive into sin, salvation, ownership, and the mind. Now, overall, these little booklets are great. He's got a whole stack of these things, all focused on single topics in each one of them. Some of them will go along with sermon series. Some are standalone. All, I would say, are probably useful in life, right? Now, looking them up on the gty.org store, these are about $2 each. And I think they ship all orders free, but don't hold me to that. So what would I rate this? I wouldn't, remember? I'm not doing that. I was just kind of seeing if you were listening earlier or now. Anyway... I would recommend this booklet and these booklets in general. They're, they're very insightful and they're very thought provoking. The next book on the list is an actual book. This one is by Eric J. Bargerhuff and is entitled The Most Misused Verses in the Bible. Now, through the first part of this year, you'll hear of a few of this guy's books in my reviews. He's got some interesting ideas for books that I think are very helpful, at least in concept. And one of the things as I continue to study my Bible and learn from others is that Frankly, there's a massive amount of biblical ignorance floating around out there. There are the obvious charlatans. They'll always be there. There are some who are wolves. They're not as obvious. They sound okay on the surface, but they have nefarious motives, and as such, they are master Bible twisters. We need to be on the lookout and very careful about these types of people. They're dangerous. But then there's a, and I'd have to say a majority of Protestants, pastors, leaders, teachers, and laypeople who are just more surface level in their knowledge of the Bible. And side note, I thought I was pretty solid until I changed churches over, you know, the last year-ish, and the small fish in a big pond thing happened all over again. It just stressed to me that I have so much more to learn. Something all too common today are people who don't delve into the Bible deeply, but are more let's call them Bible repeaters. They hear this teacher, good or bad, say a thing or make a claim or exegete, and I use that term loosely, a verse or a passage, and they just kind of regurgitate what they heard without even attempting to verify that what they were just told is correct. And when I say they, yeah, I mean me too. It's admittedly much easier to just repeat than it is to search and study. 
So one of my pet peeves is when scripture is just wrenched out of context and used in a way it was never meant to be. For instance, quote, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now clearly this is a verse promising reward for worship. The problem is that this is Satan tempting Jesus. Now, we know that parts of speeches, the errant speeches of Job's so-called friends, they are often misused as correct biblical doctrine. The problem is they're not correct biblical doctrine. Okay, But then we get into these very common misused Bible verses. And these are things that we find on, say, posters and insulated drink containers and T-shirts and Bible covers and just everywhere. And I'd be willing to bet that most have no idea of the context of these verses. They've just grabbed on because it it sounds good, and they've decided to claim a massively out-of-context verse as their life verse. So what are some of these verses? How about, uh, judge not, lest ye be judged? That's one. Or Jeremiah 29.11 is a favorite, for I know the plans I have for you, etc., etc., What about uh, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them? Yeah, you're probably using that one wrong. One that's been prominent in American politics and and theology for a few years now, and frankly, every time a Democrat wins the presidency, to be honest, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, and yeah, you know the rest of that one. What about train up a child in the way he should go? And then we're promised that when he gets older, he won't depart from it. But some of them do. So, like, what's up with that? And one more, the favorite of every athlete out there, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But can you? There are a total of 17 verses or passages that are addressed in this book. I was familiar with all but one of them as being very commonly misused. Now, as I warned you, I definitely recommend this book, right? Recommend all these books for the most part. We need to be more than just shallow Bible studiers. We need to understand what our Bible is actually telling us as best as we possibly can, at least. Especially in the United States and the West in general, we really have no excuse for not knowing what the Bible is telling us and to use God's words wrongly and attribute them to Him I really think that could qualify as using God's name in vain as we're making the claim that God said something that he never said. So definitely take a look at this book. It's well worth the read. Skipping to the fourth book that I finished thus far, Parables by John MacArthur. This is actually a book from 2015, but I had never seen it before. So when I saw it, I threw it on my Christmas list and someone, and wow, do I not remember who, got it for me. Every year, when I get a book for a gift, I put it at the head of the list to read. I think it's only fair. I think it's only right to do that. Someone thought enough about me to get it. I need to read it. My kid got me the misused Bible verse book, and she also got me the, the book that I'll be reviewing in a, in a moment, the fourth book. Now, like I said, someone in my family got me this parables book. I don't remember who, so I'm sorry. Now, much along the same concept as the Misused Bible Verses book, this is a dive into 10 of Jesus' parables, analyzing them, placing them in their correct context, and drawing out the biblical purpose, the meaning, and the application for these parables. Now, I would say that for some of them, this wasn't anything new for me. I knew what they were talking about. But some of them, as he unfolded the historical and biblical context, the parable took on a richer, fuller meaning— Now, we tend to look at the parables from a lens of our current era 
And to really understand the purpose, the confusion, the scandal that some of these, in some cases, very small stories brought, you really need to understand what they meant at the time they were told. Once again, definitely recommend the book. Okay, final book in the review. This was the third book I finished. Uh, this is a book that I will just tell everyone to get. Get it on audio or hard copy or electronic. I don't care. Get this book. Get it from the library if that's your bag. But I think as you read it, you're going to want your own copy. This was a book that was recommended to me, went on my list, the kid got it for me, and wow, am I happy that chain of events took place. The book is entitled Gospel Treason by Brad Bigney. This is a book that should cause you just great introspection. The subtitle of the book is Betraying the Gospel with Hidden Idols. The premise is that we are all idolaters, and it's not as easy as that. It's it's subtle. It's sneaky idolatry. We have idols where we don't even know we have them. We take good, even godly desires, and cross a fairly thin but grayish line of good into bad, into idolatry. This one, if taken seriously, this book, taken seriously, will prick your conscience. It will cause you, I think, to heavily self-examine yourself and will, as we all have this defense mechanism, make you think, hey, I know that, and then fill in the blank, should really read this. He or she could benefit greatly. That was probably my biggest problem with the book. It didn't have a reminder like every other page that, uh, hey, this is about you, chump, focus. So our lives are inundated with so much good and bad, and we start to orient and organize and prioritize things. In the process, we kind of move the gospel and God to the side as we engage in a continual process of elevating everything else. What we should be doing is, is we should be on a continual hunting expedition in our lives, looking for where we raised up another idol to worship and knock it back down where it belongs, or maybe in some cases out of our lives entirely. The problem is that we can't do this on our own. On our own is generally how we raise up these idols in the first place. We require the gospel in order to reorient our thinking. So, are you quick to anger? Uh, you're an idolater. Are you bossy and aggy? Idolater. Are you impatient? Idolater. Are you an overzealous parent? Be careful. Could be idolatry. This is one of the very, very few books where I've stopped mid-chapter, set it down, and went to God in prayer. You must get this book. You must read through this book. You must apply the information in this book to your life. One word of caution, though. Be prepared to get your toes stepped on. We are all idolaters, most of us many times over. You're going to get a kick in the pants about what you do for the church, your work-life balance, the way you treat your spouse, the position you've placed your kids, your sense of entitlement, your feelings of self-importance, even your belief that you're being slighted or taken advantage of. I firmly believe that every single person that reads this book, if he or she takes it seriously, will be offended at some point by the notion that how dare this man insinuate this thing that just popped into my head is an idol that I'm worshiping. So, so far, I'm four books finished in this year, if you count the first booklet, which I clearly do, and I'm a good ways into the next two books. And I'll make this claim already for 2024. If you only had enough to buy one book this year, make it this one, Gospel Treason. 
Okay. We've reached the end of Danny's book review installment one. Hopefully you find this useful. Future reviews will likely be shorter, but it all really kind of depends on how fast I read and how many books I can finish. I'll put links for these books in the show notes. Amazon, most likely, unless it's something specifically found on a certain site. If you've got any questions or comments, feel free to contact me, either through commenting on this episode or through email. Charlie Tremendous Jones said, quote, You will be the same person in five years as you are today, except for the people you meet and the books you read. Regardless of the format you prefer, make sure you're reading, and make sure you're reading at least some books that have the purpose of impacting your life. Now, go read something. And with that, sadly, we've reached the end of yet another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. I feel we've bonded as we've laughed and cried and twisted our faces in incredulity. If you've enjoyed or found value in what you've heard, go on and do all the podcast things. And don't forget to check the show notes for links and contact info. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.